The Spectator magazine combines incisive political analysis with books and arts reviews of unrivaled authority. Subscribe today for just £12 and receive a 12-week subscription in print and online, plus a £20 Amazon gift voucher, absolutely free. Go to spectator.co.uk forward slash voucher. Hello and welcome to the Americano podcast, a series of discussions about American power, politics and society. On each episode, I will talk to an American expert or an expert on America about something that's going on in America in 2023. I am delighted to be joined today by Charlie Gamble, who is a former diplomat. Uh, You were on the foreign desk, uh, the Iran desk in the foreign office, sorry, I should say. Uh, And he joins me here sitting opposite me in the Spectator uh, studio in a sort of confrontational way. But we're not going to be confrontational, Charlie. Uh, Welcome to the Spectator. Thank you very much. Really lovely to be here. Uh, We're going to talk about uh, this deal that the Biden administration has struck uh, this week. Six, I think it was, uh, US citizens have returned to America having been released by Iran. And six billion uh, that was sort of in funds, six billion dollars, which was frozen in Korea, has been unfrozen. It's a rather significant sum of money. There has been a political backlash. Uh, Republicans are angry about it. They're saying that um, the Biden administration is funding terror, which is the line they often use about Iran. And Donald Trump has said that Joe Biden is dumb as a brick. What do you read into this deal, Charlie? Do you think this is a significant thawing? Uh, in in frosty relations? I think US-Iran relations since 1979 have been categorised by a lot of mistrust. And over the course of those years, there hasn't really been much consensus between Iran and America. I think in the context of that, we should be wary about reading anything too positive into this um, because this is not a return to the nuclear deal, as Anthony Blinken has said when asked about whether this heralded a return to talks around reviving the 2015 JSPOA. He said that's not currently on the table. But I think what this does allow America and Iran to do is it allows them to talk about... Th- it allows them to talk through Doha about issues that are of interest to both of them. So you could have a conversation that isn't about the nuclear deal where I don't think either side is really going to get what they want, mm. but you can have a conversation that leads to a positive outcome. America or Biden can say, look, we're not, we're not paying a ransom to Iran. What we're actually doing is we're giving the money that is theirs. Mm. The Iranians can say, well, we've done well because we've got our money back and we can use that to prop up our own economy. And I think Biden, if he wants to appeal to the Iranians, amongst whom he's not particularly popular at the moment because sanctions have actually blighted the Iranian economy, this is a way for him to say, look, actually, we're not totally against the Iranian people. We're looking to find ways of giving the Iranian people money that is there so they can be used for humanitarian purposes. I can probably see why there is a backlash in America, particularly um, given given the divides that exist there. But I think also, you know, there's been some very cogent points made amongst the Republicans saying it's all very well if you've got very strong safeguards on this money only going to particular purposes, uh, humanitarian, food, agriculture. But that money that's not being spent on humanita- on humanitarian food, agriculture uh, and medicine can probably be spent on Iran's you know, weapons thing, weapons programs and things that the Americans don't like. Yeah. I think the counter to that is that Iran's weapons and Iran's military program hasn't really suffered under the, the, econ- the economic decline of Iran in the last four or five years. It's the Iranian people who've suffered. Yes. So that, the argument there would be that the, tearing up the JCPOA has not actually stopped Iran progressing towards... Uh, well, getting a nuclear weapon. 
So I think if I mean I was, I was reading this morning, I was looking back at some some House of Commons uh, Select Committee reports on UK Iran relations, and I, and I remember I was working in the, in the Foreign Office at this time, and I was really struck by what it said there, which was in 2018 at a point at which Iran had been totally compliant with the JCPOA, America exited the deal, mm. and as of 2019, Iran stopped being compliant with the deal. So it started enriching uranium to above the 3.6 per seven percent, which was allowed under the 2015 agreement, and it started stockpiling highly enriched uranium. Um, and doing activities which are consistent with someone who's who's not just doing this for a sort of civil nuclear um, program. Mm. So I think, has it stopped? I think there's a very good argument to say Iran was compliant with the deal until Trump left the deal, and then at which point it, it stopped being compliant. And on the one hand, I think you can you can sort of understand that Iran has difficulty trusting you know the, the other side of the bargain. Yes. And, you know, there have been attempts in 2022, there were three very significant attempts to get the talks back on track. Um, but Iran had been in quite serious breach of 2015. Um, and Iran wasn't really satisfied. Iran wanted from America guarantees that it wasn't going to resile from any commitments made in 2022. Mm. And America just, unfortunately, because of the way, you know, the electoral cycle works, it just couldn't give those guarantees. So there, that was a huge sticking point. Um, so I think that the 2015 deal, I often liken it to an Aesop's fable where you've got uh, the, the sun and the wind saying, I'm going to take this person's jacket off and the wind sort of huffs and puffs and blows and the rain blows and the person keeps their jacket tighter, tighter around them. Mm. And then the sun says, OK, it's my turn now. And it just sort of the clouds part. It does nothing. And the person on the bench takes their jacket off. And I think <laughs> the idea was to sort of kill Iran with kindness, you know, take off these sanctions make the economy grow again, make the middle class grow again, loosen the control of the IRGC over the black economy mm. um, and help Iran sort of find its own feet mm. and not increase Iran's own paranoia about the way that the West is, is going to be, behave terribly towards it. Let's talk about, you mentioned Doha, let's talk about Qatar playing this uh, instrumental role in, in brokering relations between uh, America and Iran. I mean, the the sense, and I'm sure this is very superficial, so correct me if I'm wrong, the sense has been that Israel and Saudi have been become closer in the last decade, mm-hmm. um, 15 years perhaps, and they are operating very much against Iran and Qatar. And now Qatar, but Qatar is, has its own influence in the region. And is, is Qatar in, endangering itself uh, by playing this brokering role? I think I think Qatar is is, is very is, is obviously very good at playing this role. It played yeah. to great effect with the Taliban, um, as it you know, to big impact. Whether you think that was a good outcome or not, that's a, a different topic. But um, I think the situation in the Middle East is in quite a lot of flux. I think with this idea that America is potentially withdrawing from the Middle East because it wants to concentrate more on Russia, it wants to concentrate more on China. Um, and it probably has some other pressing domestic issues that it needs to attend to. With that, I think what you're seeing is a bit more independence of people like Saudi Arabia, people like, you know, the Ibrahim Accords. That's in that context. And mm. the Iranian-Saudi rapprochement is in some ways potentially more interesting uh, than the Israeli-Saudi rapprochement. And again, Israeli-Saudi relations are, they're not perfect. And, and then there's a lot of hostility and there's a lot of mistrust on both sides. And I think when asked about it the other day, Bin Salman said, well, they haven't got any worse. Mm. Um, which is an indication that there's actually a lot to work through there. But mm. And I think as America sort of withdraws a little bit from the Middle East, you know, I was talking to a Saudi friend the other day, and, and they said, we we need to find our own way of, of having relations with powers in the region if America is not going to play such a significant role. Mm. And for us, having a, having a relationship with Iran 
you know, is actually a much it's a much more positive way for us to to, to do regional security than than having a, an antagonistic relationship towards them. Do you think that the Middle East, uh, you know, if if America is withdrawing and we're moving, we do seem to be moving to a more multipolar world with China, uh, the rise of China and so mm-hmm. on. Do you think the Middle East is the future for the Middle East looks better because of America's withdrawal? Because America has not had a happy history mm-hmm. uh, of interfering in the Middle East. Yeah. Is that fair to say? I think I think with with America's withdrawal from the Middle East, that the reaction to that is that you're going to have China playing a much more prominent role. And China was absolutely key in facilitating that um, rapprochement between um, Saudi and Iran. Mm. So, you, you know, you could say that, that there's more stability because you're going to America's going to withdraw, and therefore, with America's complicated history since 9/11 and before. It hasn't been easy for them to play a, 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 an almightily positive um, role in the region for lots of reasons. China will come in and, and play a role, um, but you wonder what reaction that will have from America. They might think actually, well, we're 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 losing out here because geopolitically we're going to lose we're going to lose influence in that region. We're actually going to look to get back in so that we can counter China's influence there. So mm. it, it's not in a vacuum that they're looking to withdraw, but but. I think it's possible, and and you know when Iran and Saudi become closer, that is a good thing. I think I think writ large, you know, there's obviously a, there's obviously a lot in that, and that might be a bit too simplistic. So that's a good thing, but I think it's better than them being at each other's throats. Yes, um, yeah. uh, and I mean uh, uh, the sort of the Sunni Shia divide is is how a lot of people framed it. Uh, do you think that's been misunderstood by Western analysts? I think I think since obviously 9/11 western analysts you know uh, the Sunni Shia divide has been something that's been that's been uppermost in our mind. Mm. I think one of the things that comes out of America a lot is that Iran is the world's number one sponsor of state terrorism. Mm. And where I have a problem with that or where I have a question around that is that if you look at the the, the trajectory of global terrorism since 2001 that's been largely by Sunni groups so your al-Qaeda's your JNM's your ISIS, all these kind of groups. These are Sunni groups that are backed by or linked to some kind of ideology that's come out of you know Sunni bits of the Gulf and Saudi Pakistan, Arabia. Saudi Arabia being a yeah. huge one. Um, and I think Iran's sponsorship of ter- state terrorism in the re- or state sponsorship of terrorism reason it, it's I don't, I don't think that really stacks up. Um, mm. So I think that. Yeah, I, I would say that, that that's that's the question I always have when stuff comes out of America, saying Iran is the number one sponsor of terrorism in the world. And you think, well, actually, it's probably not. But it, it's Saudi, and it's and it's probably Pakistan. If you look at Afghanistan since two thousand and one onwards, yes, Pakistan have had a hugely close relationship with uh, with Taliban, um, which is slightly backfiring from them now. Iran has been involved with these groups. So Iran crossing the Sunni-Shia divide. Obviously, Iran's Shia and these, the Al-Qaeda is a Sunni group, and Iran hosted a lot of these Al-Qaeda people mm. after 9-11. So Iran has always played a, a role that straddles that mm. in a way that suits its own interest. And Hezbollah, I mean, that's the... And Hezbollah, which yeah. is obviously is a you know, key, key, um, key component of Iran's regional security architecture. But something else that's interesting is that the ruling philosophy of Iran is this thing called Velayat Faqih, which... Um, is a role for a, for Khamenei in the Iranian political system, which is not consistent with traditional Shia philosophy, whereby it's a sort of more quietist position. They don't get involved in politics. They they tend the Shia, the Shia clergy tend to be very much in the background, and and we're going to provide guidance to the rulers. We're, n- we're not getting involved in, in in ruling things in a way that that in the Sunni world it's quite different. So in some ways, even though uh, Iran is the sort of vanguard of Shia philosophy in the region. It's actually a, it's a bit of an apostasy in the way in the way it does its sheer politicking. Yes, 
And it's become more, I think you're insinuating that, that it's become more theocratic. It's almost become the cliche that uh, a lot of sort of Western neocons and so on have said that it is, uh, to a certain extent, at the government level. At the government level, it, it, it's funny because you have these different trends in Iran and, 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 a, and, a, and an oft-repeated story is that, you know, that the, the Iranian person will say, under the Shah, they stole our oil, um, but that's fine because we can replace our oil. Mm. But these guys, they've stolen our religion and you can't replace our religion. Right. And Iran is a hugely secular country. And I think that Khamenei or Khomeini back in the day said, you know, uh, politics is polluted. We need to put religion in it to sort of to, to clean it up. And I yeah. think what's happened is that politics has actually polluted the religion and it's made Iran incredibly anti-religious. You know, and there's a lot of anti-religiousness going around in Iran. Yes. But at the same time, the, the sort of the carapace of religion, you know, that this hijab issue is why the hijab issue is such an important one, because it's the last thing that they've got. Yeah. It's the last vestige of a, of a religious society. It's the sort of symbol that people are, uh, are, are being obedient to, to, to the religious norms of Iran. And once that's gone, and everyone's not really going to the mosque, and everyone's not really doing the things that they should do as, as proper Shiite Muslims, um, you'll see how far, or one, one might be able to see how far religion has fallen in Iran. And so are you saying that would conservatives and Iranian conservatives, obviously, just to sort of sum them up in a, a lump, yeah, yeah, yeah. Uh, they would be, they are alarmed at what's happened to the Iranian government, but they would be, they would be fearful about sort of Western liberalisation, Western style liberalisation, and therefore they'll cling to the, the hijab. Yeah, I mean, definitely, definitely. I mean, there, 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 there is an element within the hardliners in Iran who see creeping Western liberalisation as a massive threat to the body politic, as a massive threat to the fabric of society. I mean, that's a religious conservatism is something that Iran is built on, and, and religious conservatism, the fight against Iraq in the in, in the nineteen eighties war, this all goes to the heart of what it is for the Islamic Republic to be the Islamic Republic. It's a revolutionary Islamic Republic that's founded on these. Um, Islamic ideals. And in your experience of Iran, how deeply embedded is anti-Americanism in Iranian society? I think that's a great question because what people often fail to realise within within the Islamic Republic itself, within the people who rule the Islamic Republic, is that anti-Americanism, anti-imperialism, you know, this sort of Franz Fanon, this sort of third-worldist ideology, that's as important uh, uh, an aspect of the ruling philosophy of the Islamic Republic of Iran as core Shiite beliefs are. And it's probably more closely aligned to traditional sort of third-worldist, you know, the Red Brigades and the Bader Meinhof gang in some ways than it is to core uh, Shia political philosophy. And, so, you know, and there's lots of um, Shia clerics who say that Velayat Faqih is an apostasy. Mm. Um, yeah. Well, but I, I mean, would it does is anti-Britishness as as part well, of the force? Yeah. Anti-Britishness is absolutely huge, yeah. um, and I remember, you know, being a British diplomat and in in interacting with Iranians, you know, it was sometimes comic because they would be, they think and the Islamic and, and the Islamic Republic is is similar that we absolutely control everything. Yeah. They think the Queen controls everything or the King controls everything. That we are behind, you know, anything that the weather or anything. I remember the first time I went to Iran. I was walking around this square with this young mullah who was very serious. We having this interesting conversation, and he said, I'll tell you one thing. I said, go on, tell me. And he goes, if you'd lifted up the beard of um, Khomeini, under his chin, he, was, he had tattooed, made in Britain. <laughs> 
And, and, and I remember thinking, well, up until now, we've had a really sensible conversation, but, but it's suddenly gone there. And, yeah. and that's something that I've heard repeatedly, or not particularly that one, but a variation of that one, that the UK is behind anything. So it's immensely flattering. It's hugely flattering. And yeah. I think when you work in the civil service and you realise how <laughs> dysfunctional it is, you sometimes realise, well, I wish they were right. No, yeah. I wish they were right. But, but yeah, and, and people who've, who've, who were working in Tehran said, it's a blessing and a curse. Yeah. Because you have the sense that they are absolutely all-powerful. And I remember, you know, Iranians say to us, well, just get the Americans not to do this because you yeah. guys control the Americans, don't you? And he said, well, you know, we don't actually, you know, control um, the, yeah. <laughs> yeah. the Americans. Well, they, I mean, I remember having that in Pakistan. I was on a first right. trip in Pakistan, and I remember talking to a very sane, normal official. And halfway through the conversation, he said, I know what you're doing because you're British. You're controlling my mind as I talk. Mm. And I thought, well, I wish I had that power. Yeah. <laughs> you know, it would be great. Uh, but it is, it's, it's deeply, and it's almost a sort of anti-Semitism about Brits, isn't it? That we are sort of a dark force that, that manipulates everything. I, I, th- I think there's a, would I say, grudging respect I don't know. I, I don't know why I said that, but I, th- I think th- there's a long history, and, yeah. and you know, and it goes back to the uh, 19th century and our, and our imperial involvement in the region, and uh, and it's just part of an Iranian DNA. I mean, you know, there's this um, wonderful book called My Uncle Napoleon, and 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 from the sort of pre-revolutionary times, and the whole the whole sort of theme of this comedy is that the British are controlling everything, and you mm. can't don't talk because the British will listen. Yeah. And I remember one Iranian telling me telling me after the Scottish independence referendum that actually had nothing to do with Scottish independence. It was actually a way for the British to incite unrest uh, about sort of potential irredentist issues in Iran. So it was a total sham. <laughs> yeah. It was a total sham. Um, so That would be brilliant. Yeah, it, yeah, yeah. It, but so some of the, some of the things you, you, you hear along the way about the Britain's role in the world, in Iran, are, are slightly outlandish. But, but the terrifying thing is, is that these are very, very, very... Realistic. They really hold these views within the Iranian within the Iranian regime. Yes. And you and you only listen to Khamenei talk about uh, the British and, and on British National Day in oh, sorry the the Queen's birthday party in Tehran. I mean it's a you know it's an absolute feeding frenzy for the for the conservative Iranian press. They will take photos of the cars that are going in and they will photograph people coming out and and in some ways that's a huge millstone around the the neck of the diplomats out there trying to do a very good job. And are they, uh, I mean, there was a lot of sort of press about how King Charles is the most sort of pro-Islamic monarch we've had. Uh, do you know whether Iranians are aware of that? Are they struck by that? Are they interested in that? Or do they think it's a con? I, th- I mean, I, I imagine, this is, it sounds a bit stupid, but the ones who are interested in it would read it and say, well, that's a British sham. You know, we know yeah. why he's interested in the Islamic world, because he wants to sort of, you know, control it. And, yeah. Um, so, there's the, yeah, I mean, that, this, that strain, it can't be overemphasized. What you're talking about there is a paranoid mindset, and I mentioned yeah. anti-Semitism, and of course Israel is yeah. uh, a major player in the region. Um, but yet, the Israeli government and the Iranian government do make agreements, don't they? They're not as uh, they're not entirely they don't talk they don't not talk to each other. I mean, there you know you you look at Khamenei talking, you look at the way he refers to Israel. I mean, that's that's the sort of public pronouncement. Iran is very good at, at, at having this public line about everyone, and yes. then quite expedient in the way in which it, it deals with other you know situations. It, its stance on 
um, protecting the Muslims of the world is undercut by its relationship with Russia and Russia's involvement in the you know, Chechnya crisis. Iran is pretty silent on all that. Iran's closeness with uh, China uh, helpfully, sort of, or, or helpfully for Iran, allies the fact of what China's doing to weaker Muslims. And mm. so it, it, it's very good at, at, at having a public face and then having whatever's whatever's necessary in the background. And that, and I think that's been a feature of Iran. You know, throughout and and Iran's ability to exist in opaque spaces uh, comes from is is part of this sort of heritage of poetry and allegory and myth and saying one thing and actually meaning another and these very sort of complicated forms of expression and actually you're saying one thing but actually you're actually meaning another. Yes. Um, and that I mean, and obviously that translates kind of all the way up into where into where they. And it, I mean, this is something that I think of a lot of Americans don't almost deliberately don't uh, recognize. Uh, the kind of the the fact that when you say something in Iran, it might mean another thing. It's it, I mean, do you think Americans struggle to understand that? Uh, I'm not. That sounds rude about Americans. I don't mean to be rude about Americans. No, but they, there is a sort of cultural misunderstanding between the two countries. Yeah, and and and, and Iran is a. It's such a cliche, but it is a very complex place. I mean, it's a very yeah. complex place if you're trying to understand it politically. Um, and it's a very complex, you know, j- just in terms of actually who holds power. And I remember, you know, thinking about the negotiations that, that, that probably led up to this hostage release. I was reminded of when the UK started negotiating with Iranians under Rouhani, there was a sense in government that, well, finally, we've got a moderate. We can actually talk to a moderate and through Rouhani or through Zarif uh, into the foreign ministry. But actually, you're talking to Zarif, Zarif but he doesn't make the decisions because the decision is made by Khamenei yeah. in the Supreme Leader's office. And now that you have, ironically, now that you have someone like Raisi at the helm who is absolutely aligned with the IGC and absolutely aligned with the Supreme Leader's office, there's probably more chance of making traction on stuff like this because you can have a dialogue that is probably going to go all the way up to Khamenei without there being mistrust that it's the moderates trying to get their own end. So yes. Iran as a, as, a, as a country to understand from a distance is incredibly complex. And, and I think that, you know, whether it's poetry, whether it's history, whether it's philosophy, this is why it's such an intriguing country. I mean, and, it, and it's a, and it potentially probably an orientalist cliche to say these things, but it, but it really is. And I think the more I study Iran, the more I engage with the poetry and the philosophy and the history and, and the politics, you, you just realise it's incredibly complex. And yes. you realise that, yeah, it, it's not as simple as we think it is. And there was some, I mean, hope, I don't think it's wrong to say hope, hope of a revolution in the Western press, mm. uh, uh, almost yeah. cheer, cheerleading it on. Yeah. Uh, there have been sporadic <laughs> moments of that in the last ten, five, ten years. Yeah. Uh, are, they re- are those realistic? Is that a realistic possibility? So, I mean, and, and, uh, going back to, to, to the way the Iranians see the UK, I think there's a, this is a really interesting policy challenge because I think UK and America wants to stand up for those people who are trying to stand up for their basic rights. Yeah. Um, but in doing so, given the paranoia that exists in Iran, the minute a UK diplomat or, or politician stands foursquare behind the protesters, that protest movement will just become very easily discredited in the, in the eyes of other Iranians who might want to get on board with it, yes. such is the toxicity of, of the UK's um, reputation in Iran. Um, I, you know, I, I think it's a bit like the sort of the fall of the Soviet Union in, in the 90s, where people sort of experienced Soviet watchers would have looked at it before it fell and said, well, there's no chance it's going to fall because it's got a strong intelligence service. You know, it's pretty robust. It can withstand sanctions. And, and we think they've got this. And then suddenly it fell and everyone looked, well, how did we miss that? Mm. And I think with Iran, you might have a similar sort of brittleness to the Islamic Republic. Mm. And this Masa Amini stuff, and it's the one-year anniversary now, it might not be 
revolution tomorrow, but I think there is a gradual erosion of the legitimacy of the Islamic Republic. And I think what, what's happening now is that there's some really fundamental questions being asked of the Islamic Republic, you know, this women, life, freedom. It's a very diff- These are very difficult questions for the Islamic Republic to, to answer because they all have daughters and a lot of people in the Islamic Republic who have sent their daughters overseas to learn in you know, education establishments in Europe and North America they find all this very difficult. Yes. Why shouldn't my daughter be able to, to, to wear what she wants or why shouldn't be able to get a job that, that she wants? And I think we're at a very difficult point. And when, sorry, when Khamenei dies uh, at some point, which he will, that's a huge inflection point. Yes. What, what, I mean, what could happen there? What would be the realistic scenarios? Yeah, so the IRGC is the, is the sort of absolutely incredibly strong military body that is closely aligned to Khamenei and distinct from the sort of regular army. Mm. Um, and, and I think that there is a possibility that they will be behind any transition of power from Khamenei to Khamenei's son, Mojtaba Khamenei, or the, the current president, Raisi. Now, that Khamenei would probably want his son to, to, to be supreme leader, but he, the, the challenge there is that he doesn't want to repeat this sort of dynastic succession of power that the Shah did. Yes. But on the other hand, he knows that revolutions eat their children and he doesn't want his child to be eaten. Yeah. Um, and he's seen what's happened to Khomeini's children, that they've all been sort of, or ancestors, they've all been sidelined or, you know, horrible things have happened to them. Yeah. And other prominent families whose offspring have had not nice things happen to them. So he's probably torn between his duties as a father and as a supreme leader. Yes. Um, you suggested earlier, Charlie, that... Um, the, this, is, this deal is not a sign that the nuclear deal is back on the table. Is it fair to say that the, the JCPOA, it's, it's done, it's not coming back until perhaps Iran does finally develop a nuclear weapon? I think the, the, the world is a very different place to the one in which 2015 was signed. Yes. Um, it, you know, there was no war in mainland Europe. Lots of things hadn't happened in 2001, that, uh, 2015 rather, that have happened now. Iran's reliance on China, Iran's closeness to Russia, all these things now make a simple kind of rehashing of 2015 slightly obsolete. Mm. And, and Iran is, is, you know, Iran is enriching uranium up to 60%. No other non-nuclear armed power in the world enriches uranium up to, you know, powers that have, or, or countries that have civil nuclear programs, they don't go up to 60%. Mm. So I think that, that JSPOA is, is probably to all intents and purposes obsolete. I'd be surprised to see what mechanisms could be brought into play, both geopolitically and kind of, you know, legally, mm. to get that deal back on the table, given a whole host of domestic concerns in America and in the UK and Europe. Um, and I think that these these talks that America and Iran are having now, I think they're a really good way of just, hey, let's try and build some trust. Let's try and have some conversations. You know, America can be seen in the eyes of Ir- the Iranian people, again, who, who I said amongst whom are not particularly popular, given the absolute blight that sanctions have been on Iran, mm. to be giving something back into the Iranian people so that it's not losing all credibility there. And I think this is a really good way for both sides to start to keep talking almost sort of you know, keep their options open, as it were. And there's more, as I said, there's more pots of money around the world where they can try and repeat this trick yeah. um, to build confidence to see where it goes. Do you think, uh, I mean, Pakistan has uh, nuclear weapons. Do you think once Iran does develop a nuclear weapon, the whole politics around it, the diplomacy around it, will all just have to change? And, and actually, it may not be the end of the world because 
people don't tend to use nuclear weapons because yes. of the apocalyptic consequences. Yeah, and I mean that's a really good point. And I think actually you you should see the the, the Saudi Arabia Iran relations uh, in that light. Mm. And, and what Saudi talking about a lot at the moment, we'd we'd quite like a nuclear program. Yeah. And I think that you should see it in that context. And and there's always the, there's always the word, but I've always felt this with Iran that that. The minute it sort of breaks out and says, right, lads, we're here, we've got one, mm. it's, it's not a good look. You know, yeah. look what happened to North Korea, and suddenly you're a pariah. And unless you can absolutely come out and say, we've got enough that, that no one can have a go at us, yeah. you're, you're sort of, you don't really want to make that move unless you are very confident that in making that move, you're not going to be totally North Koreaed. Yes. Um, and, and Iran, in its, in its DNA, it sees itself as the natural regional hegemon. It doesn't see itself as a sort of bit part pariah within the region. And um, so I think that's, that's, that's something to look out for as well. But, but um, yeah, I think you're right. You know, if Saudi Arabia said to the Americans, we were quite like a bomb and, and they're very good friends with Iran. I don't think it would be good for the long-term security of the world, but, but, but you know, you, you're right. These powers don't often use the, use the weapons they have. Charlie, thank you very much for coming on to Americano. Absolutely fascinating to have your perspective uh, and uh, a very uh, different discussion to the usual one that you hear about Iran uh, and America. <laughs> thank so thank you. It was a pleasure. Thank you very much for listening to the Americano podcast. I would like to thank my brilliant producer, Natasha Faroz, and the rest of the Spectator's broadcast team. If you like the podcast, please leave a review on whatever platform you are listening to us on. Thank you very much. God bless America. <laughs>